a listener production. This is From Zero, where I get the real stories behind some of Australia's best business successes. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost half a billion dollars annually without raising a dollar of outside capital. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak with Gabby Leibovich of Catch of the Day. When the business was a year and a half old, uh, by late uh, 2008 or so, we managed to aggregate a database of about uh, 70,000 members. That's all we had. And then we were featured on uh, Current Affair one night, and uh, overnight we managed to add an extra 30,000 members to our database. So a year and a half to get to 70, and overnight uh, to get to 100. Gabrielievich is one of Australia's best ever online retailers. He started as the eldest of three kids living in northern Israel in the 1970s. He was outgoing and had lots of friends. But it was just 16, his parents moved the family from Israel all the way to Australia. At the time, Gabby had a very basic understanding of English. But even though he was a confident kid, the language barrier made things really difficult. But Gabby was a hard worker, and he got high enough marks to get into Monash University and study computer science. But the course of Gabby's life was really set back in Israel growing up in a war zone. Look, to, to an Australian or an American kid listening to this or an adult, uh, yeah, it sounds uh, surreal, but to us it was just the only place to live. Interestingly, Adam, I mean, again, we grew up in the northern of Lebanon and uh, back in 1982 there was a serious war where my city was the, was the main target. But under no circumstances, uh, nor did my father or anyone else in the neighborhood ever contemplated, you know, moving homes to a different destination away from the rockets. And that would have been maybe 10 or 20 uh, kilometers away. Uh, this was our life, and I'm so proud of my, of my childhood. But uh, Israel has certainly been a, a, a tremendous uh, melting pot, known worldwide as the startup nation. Currently, it's the scale-up nation. And uh, always going to be a proud Israeli living in Australia. We talk about a war zone. It's very foreign for us to even think about that. But there are so literally rockets landing near your house that could have killed you. Is it, is it that genuine a war zone where, where your life was in danger as a little kid? Uh, yeah, but again, uh, I left Israel at the age of 16. My brother Hezi was 10 at the time. So the war that I'm really referring to was a, you know, quite a serious uh, war, and it was for a number of weeks throughout 1982. I was a 12-year-old kid. My brother was a 6-year-old kid. And absolutely, I mean, those memories of uh, spending uh, quite a lot of hours uh, in a shelter uh, in, our, in our apartment block. We grew in an apartment block, and I've shared a room with my brother in our first you know, six, 16 years of my life. Uh, but literally, you can hear those rockets going, boom, uh, you know, landing somewhere in the vicinity of your, of, of your neighborhood. And you think to yourself, shit, that could be my school, my friend, my grandmother's house, my uncle's house, uh, etc. But, uh, you know, another amazing childhood memory, Adam, was as soon as those rockets, uh, you know, stopped, you know, we left the shelters and one of the games that we played was, hey, let's walk around the neighborhood and see where the rockets landed. 
and let's see which one of us can find the uh, largest piece of shrapnel. <laughs> each each one of us has a bunch of shrapnel on our on our you know next to our library books uh, <laughs> and next to our television in our in our rooms. <laughs> there's a there's a great theory from actually from the Blitz in, in London in 1941. It's called the, the Nair Miss Theory, which almost talks about a similar thing where people who lived through the Blitz, the rockets landed near the house, and because they they weren't killed by the rockets, they, they almost had this invincibility in a way in their mind that they, they came close but never actually got impacted directly. How has that impacted you since then? Given you'd lived through a, a, a war, do you think you're impacted less by things like that compared to sort of the sheltered Australians like like me who have never had to deal with that kind of stuff? Absolutely. And we actually talk about exactly the same. Uh, there's a sentence about it in the book. I don't remember how it goes. By the way, Adam, did you know we wrote a book called Catch of the Decade? <laughs> and it's a great seller. Um, <laughs> but uh, back, to, back to your question. Absolutely. When we say when rockets fall around your house, I mean, uh, you know, so when when uh, when we started our business and and, and supplies told us we're not going to sell any stock to you, big deal, you know. We're just going to keep on fighting. We talk about the concept of the third door, whereby no one lets you in through the front door, and you have to come in through the window, and you need to become a lot more uh, creative in uh, in getting to where you need to be. In Israel, we have a word for it that uh, is in the English dictionary, and of course, it's called chutzpah. That all of us, uh, you know, should know what it means. Uh, to us, it's a way of life. In Australia, some people might consider us a little bit, uh, you know, rude, arrogant, and and so on. But uh, funnily enough, when we travel in Israel, we are the uh, the, the the simple, I like to call <laughs> pussycats, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Your dad was a, a classic entrepreneur as well, to an extent. I think in Israel, he owned an electronics store, uh, and then later. In Australia, he he started a business called Panasales, which which was quite a very well known business and very successful uh, factory outlet. How much of an influence was your dad on, on you and Hezzy growing up in terms of being an entrepreneur, and and how much did did his life lead you guys to be on to becoming entrepreneurs? So yeah, we mentioned we talk about that in the book as well, and uh, one thing that we have discussed during dinner again and again and again is to make it short how to make money. My dad was an entrepreneur, and uh, again, life in Israel is tough and complicated, and everyone needs to find various avenues to uh, to survive, succeed, and, and feed the family. Uh, you know, we mentioned in the book how one of my dad's side businesses was to buy secondhand cars through the you know local trading post at the time. You know, give them a bit of a clean and polish, and fix them up, and sell them for a higher price. So we've had many, many cars throughout our uh, throughout our childhood. It was just one of those things. My brother, interestingly, uh, went to uni and he studied chiropractic medicine. He did that for about five years or so. And he actually practiced for about six months. But, uh, you know, Hezi very well. And he realized very quickly that he is unable to spend the rest of his life uh, you know, I like to call it giving massages to old ladies. <laughs> and after six months, he just gave it up. And, uh, and the rest is history. We both started selling on eBay and um, we are where we are. So certainly, again, Adam, living in a Jewish community, we are surrounded by lots of people who go the traditional way. And the traditional way is, uh, you know, the grandmother wants you to be an accountant, lawyer or a doctor and, and, and certainly go to uni straight after school. I'm very proud to say, Adam, that I've never applied for a job. I've never been to an interview, nor ever have ever written a resume. Uh, straight from uh, school, I went to uni, and then I did work for my dad uh, in a number of businesses. 
Uh, Panacells was, you know, probably the largest period. It went for about 10 years. And I do like to call it as my, my university. That's where I learned how to deal with suppliers, appreciate the power of the brand, appreciate the FOMO element, learn how to advertise on TV, learn how to approach a current affair, build marketing, and many of the skills that we have used later on to build our businesses uh, certainly have been acquired at the dinner table. Gabby finished working for his dad in 2003 and took six months to figure out what his next move would be. He was newly married with a six-month-old baby at a tiny apartment in North Caulfield. He was pretty much starting from scratch. He knew he wanted to work in retail, but he just didn't know where. So he met a few different franchises, and at one point even spent $40,000 importing product from Hong Kong, which he couldn't really ever sell. And then somebody introduced Gabby to eBay. Back in 2004, eBay was only a few years old, and Australian consumers weren't quite yet sold on this online shopping thing. But Gabby took a shot and quickly realized there were lots more opportunities selling online than he ever could have dreamed of in a bricks and mortar store. The whole thing happened by error. I remember placing one product that I bought from a local supplier. It's called uh, Radio Parts. And the product was a window setter box. This was my first product. I left it online. I switched, uh, I switched off for about two weeks. I came back two weeks later and I realized that I sold about 20 of them and had about $1,000 or $2,000 profits waiting for me. <sighs> And then I thought to myself, shit, I mean, this is interesting. What else can I, what else can I place online? Uh, you know, sales uh, will happen, you know, from consumers that are not just around Brighton suddenly. You could sell to someone in Perth and you can do it at midnight. What, mm. what, what an amazing thing. I've had the skill of buying. I had some great relationships with suppliers that I acquired over my, you know, 15 years of working at previous businesses. I was, you know, almost 34 at the time. And, uh, and these were my first suppliers on the, on the eBay store. Everything happened from the garage in Caulfield. The parcels went through the post office in Caulfield. Hmm. It's very much a Caulfield story. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, I think you did that for a couple of years. And funnily enough, Hezzy, obviously your brother, was had his own online store. So I'm not sure if you guys had talked about it or it was a coincidence. But, and then you, you ended up teaming up and created a business. I think it was called Daily Deals then. And you yeah. rented a small warehouse. Yeah. Was that the same type of business, but you had your own website or was it different? And then how did you and Hezzy work out who, so once you put your business together, who, who did what? So it's interesting. Hezzy actually had a girlfriend in Queensland and he moved to Queensland. He lived there for, I don't know how long, call it a couple of years. And he also discovered eBay probably at the same time. Hezzy was mainly selling products that he could source from my dad through Panacells. And I was sourcing products from local suppliers. Mm. Another thing that Hezzy did at the time, he discovered uh, a morning television online uh, shopping. You know, Bert Newton, Kerry Ann, yeah. uh, back in the days. His first product was uh, a hands-free car kit that he discovered at uh, one of the Melbourne shows, went to China, imported a bunch of them, and created the television uh, infomercial. And, uh, and it was a great success. Uh, he moved on to importing other products like a steam iron and a pillow, etc. At the time, Adam, probably 99% of the orders came through the uh, you know, free helpline by telephone, but about 1% of the consumers were buying online. So he registered a business name and he called it dailydeals.com.au to accommodate the, uh, the measly number of, uh, of online orders. And uh, I don't exactly remember how it happened, but I'm guessing being brothers, we kept in touch and uh, he knew about my eBay store and what I'm doing. 
I saw what he was doing, and uh, we certainly saw the opportunity of you know one plus one equal three, which we can discuss later on again and again. <laughs> and um, yeah, we joined forces. We took a tiny little warehouse at uh, Roberna Street, Morabin. It was a two hundred square meter uh, building, and we kept on selling on eBay under the brands uh, under the brand Daily Deals. And we also launched an e-commerce site called dailydeals.com.au that had around you know, 60 to 80 unique uh, products on it. How much revenue were you doing back in 2006, so 07 with Daily Deals, TV show and the, and the site? How many products were you selling? What, what, what was your, your annual revenue, do you think? I think the annual revenue at the time came mainly from our television online shopping eBay wasn't doing that much. I remember clearly that when we launched the business, our aim was to sell about 60 products a day. And we did the match that if we do sell 60 products a day, it will pay for the rent and for the, you know, five or six employees and maybe allow us to take home about, you know, $50,000 a year, you know, $1,000 a week. But a year later, uh, when we already got a serious accountant and I have the numbers, I think our revenue in the financial year of 2017 was already about $8 million, Adam. So this is 2007, I'm assuming, not 2017. Correct, correct. Yeah. So that's pretty impressive. So it's from zero to $8 million in a year and a half, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So you you and Hezzy are almost a magical team with such different skill sets. You're you're this – you're a methodical operator and, and obviously a great showman. We'll talk about that in a second. And, and Hezzy's this sort of great strategic customer assessed thinker. So you've got, and probably one of the best I've ever worked with in terms of just understanding where the market will go. And as you talked about before with, with the TV stuff, plus you've got this family relationship, which, which is always complex. Uh, and you've been business partners for almost two decades. How has that relationship played out? Obviously you've been had incredible success. You do still do almost everything together. Uh, do you have disagreements? So you, you usually agree on stuff. How do you resolve it? If you don't agree, what's happened behind the scenes there? Yeah, so again, we, there's, there's a lot to talk about here, and it's a very interesting mix. We dedicated about four or five pages to that in the book. I'll just throw a couple of lines here just to get the momentum going. And the one that I often use is when you have two partners and both of them think alike, then one of them is not required. And uh, you, you know both me and Hezi very well, and you know that we, uh, we, we are always we, – we're quite often different in the way that we see the world and, uh, and act and behave uh, we, we are completely. We have completely different personalities. For example, uh, you invited Hezi to join this podcast, but it was obvious that he's not going to do it. Right? He's, he's never done one, and he probably will never do one. So I've taken the role of being the face of the business. Hezi uh, enjoys the, as you said, the methodical early days of, of launching a business or a startup. Uh, you know, he is a genius in so many ways. Uh, most people won't know that unless you actually unless you actually work with him because he wouldn't even put his photo on LinkedIn. <laughs> right, Adam? When you guys don't agree on something, which I, I imagine has happened over the, over the journey, yeah. how do you resolve it? <laughs> one, one of the reasons this business has been successful is because me and Hezi are so passionate about what we have built, whether it's Catch, Scoopon, and various our investments, etc. So the whole thing comes from love and we understand that. Uh, and because there is so much love in it, 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 it can cause conflicts because we don't necessarily think alike. And that's great. Uh, what we have found is that on some things we'll agree, on some things uh, we will not agree. And on the other things, we will just keep on fighting until one person can convince the other. 
that puts me in a very uh, interesting predicament, Adam, because I'm sure that you will agree with me that Hezi is one of the toughest negotiators ever. Because <laughs> uh, I know that you've been on uh, on a numerous, uh, you know, negotiation <laughs> uh, <laughs> tables with, with Hezi, and he, he, he is extremely tough. So, yeah, that's the case. <laughs> so, we talk about going to that first, that first, the first time you guys got together and, and created um, daily deals. I'm pretty sure you guys never raised capital, and you had to fund stuff like rent and stock and wages. Yeah. There's a bunch yeah. of costs that every startup has. Yeah. These days, most startups raise a family friends round or go to an incubator and get a hundred grand. You guys didn't get any of that. It basically didn't exist. How did you physically start the business? Look, your listeners need to understand that the whole thing started in 2004 and the business actually started in 2006. I honestly don't even think that people were using the word startup at the time. Uh, As we mentioned in our book, we really see ourselves, Adam, as accidental entrepreneurs in many ways. And uh, we we have failed by by running this business as a traditional old age business because we are probably old age retailers. The first time that we've raised money was about when the business was about five years old, and the whole thing happened again by 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 coincidence and and by by error, simply because investors started ringing us from all around the world, seeing the opportunity where Gabi and Hezi didn't even see the opportunity. When I say old age retailers, we have always been profitable, Adam. We made sure that we are profitable every day, every week, every month. And when we were profitable, we took those dividends and we put them in our pocket. You buy an apple for a dollar, you sell it for $2, you keep the profit and so on. Saying that, Adam, we ended up selling our business at what may seem to be a very low price right now, our business being catch of the day, uh, because we never played the real game. And the real game today is to try and uh, build market share and, 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 and build revenue. But we always looked at building profits uh, and looked at our EBITDA every single day. 100%. But how did you, before you even were able to make a profit, how did you, how, did you, how could you buy stock? How could you rent that 200 square meter warehouse? Look, the whole thing really started with uh, $100,000. So I put $50,000, Hezi put $50,000. And the uh, the purchasing was in much smaller numbers. The first mm. product that we sold on catch of the day was uh, thirteen products. The next product was about the next item sold for about quantity of thirty, and then it kept on growing. All profits went uh, into the business. Again, old age retail using our own money. A few months after creating daily deals, Gabby and Hezzy launched their next business, a little website called Catch of the Day. The idea for Catch actually came from a US business called Woot, which Hezzy discovered. Woot, which was later bought by Amazon, sold just one heavily discounted product every day until it sold out. One day it was a laptop, the next day it could be a television. The business was so successful in the US, Gabby and Hezzy thought they could bring it to Australia and build something really similar. Now Catch the Day is a multi-billion dollar business, and it's actually hard to imagine a time when it wouldn't be successful. But back in 2006, no one thought it would work. But Gabby and Hezzy followed their intuition, and they soon proved the data's wrong. Catch of the day ended up, you know, becoming Australia's most watched online shopping site with the, by uh, by 2010, within a you know three to four year period. Uh, every single day at midday, there was one deal on the page. It may have been in the category of electronics or baby or or cosmetics, Manchester or food. But we made sure that whatever the product is, it is at Australia's cheapest price. 
uh, we bought really well. The numbers just kept on growing and growing. Uh, whereby by 2008, we were selling, you know, things like 4,000 Toshiba laptops in a day or a uh, or million dollars worth of uh, Samsung televisions. Uh, word of mouth spread like crazy. By the way, Adam, before the uh, introduction of social media even, we're talking no Facebook, no Instagram, mm-hmm. no LinkedIn. If we wanted to uh, send a message to the world, we wrote an email and sent it to our uh, suppliers via blog. Uh, it was a different world at the time, but uh, it was also a different world from the point of view of a lot less competition because Jerry Harvey was not selling online, nor was Maya, David Jones, Country Road, JB Hi-Fi, or any of the usual players. Mm-hmm. So uh, we did something right, and uh, the word spread fast. Uh, that's, a, that's a really good point. So Facebook existed, but but basically didn't have a have an advertising model. Yeah. And Google was early days then, and there's a little bit of affiliate marketing, but it was it was very infant. How did you guys actually get people to even know you existed? What was the sort of silver bullet for you guys growing catch in those first two or three years to get to that pretty significant volume so quickly? Okay, I really can't describe it in any other way than word of mouth and great deals. And let's be honest, there's nothing better than having a great deal and letting, making sure that your workmates, uh, your school friends, uh, your family members tell you about the latest shoe, the latest toaster, the latest book, the latest laptop that they found. Everyone loves to rave about uh, their savings and, uh, and show off to their friends. Later on, we discovered the, the power of PR and, 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 and building our brands. We realized that we have something really interesting. Uh, we were certainly leaders in the space of startup uh, and digital. And we started trying to get as much PR as we can on newspaper, radio, and, uh, and television. And, uh, and it worked tremendously for us. I'll tell you one quick story, Adam, about... Uh, times and, and, and relevance by when the business was a year and a half old uh, by late uh, 2018, 2008 or so, we managed to aggregate a database of about uh, 70,000 members. That's all we had. And it took us a year and a half to get to 70. And then we were featured on uh, Current Affair one night. I'll never forget that because I told every single person in the world <laughs> that I know to make sure to watch, to watch me on television at 6.30 p.m. And uh, overnight, we managed to add an extra 30,000 members to our database. So a year and a half to get to 70 and yeah. overnight uh, to get to 100. And that really meant that the snowball just kept on growing because the next morning, 100,000 people visited our site and, 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 and so on. With the growth, we were able to establish great relationships with suppliers. Suppliers started hearing about that company that is able to sell 4,000 laptops in a day or 10,000 pillows in, uh, in a few hours. And uh, let's be honest, Adam, everyone loves to deal with the winner and everyone has a problem in their warehouse that they need to convert to cash. And uh, we became an amazing destination for suppliers to, uh, to clear the stock. You made a, a really good point. I was going to ask on, on PR. You're, and you personally are probably one of the great PR people in Australian business in the last decade or two decades. And I don't think anybody appeared on Current Affairs today tonight more than more than you personally. And, and you talk about it like it's easy, but I think every founder, certainly every every e-commerce founder, just dreams of becoming on getting on a current affair. I think it took us a decade to get on those shows. And you guys were on every week. How did you do it? How did you get on the first time? And how did you how are you on so regularly? Was there a what strategies can you give to people listening in with their own their own business to, to actually how do you generate earned media? Yeah. So talking about the differences between myself and Hezi again, he refused to go on television 
And uh, his nickname to me is the uh, trumpeteer, you know, uh, because I like to trumpet and, and scream. But I don't like to trumpet and scream about how good Gabby is. I like to trumpet and scream about our businesses. And uh, what I have found out over these decades of building businesses, Adam, is that the media likes to talk to the founder of the business. And especially if the story is, uh, you know, includes things like rags to riches, uh, immigration, and David versus Goliath. And all those elements are very much evident in our, in our story and in the businesses that we have built. And uh, I was always available. So to answer your question, be available. Quite often, the media don't have anything to write about today and they'll call you and they'll, and they'll need your comment about a story. I'll drop everything that I can and drive to our warehouse, whether I'm in shorts and thongs or whatever I'm wearing, <laughs> and I'll be there and I'll be very much available. This is the, this is the, uh, the push. And then you've got the pull as well. I remember in the very early days, Adam, reading the financial papers, seeing, uh, seeing the names of the reporters and, and reaching out to them, reaching out to them by phone, by email, giving them ideas for stories, telling them about my business. I can show you some emails where, you know, just telling people, hi, I'm Gabi and Hezi, blah, blah, blah. This is what we do. We've launched a business called uh, Catch of the Day. And guess what? Last week we sold uh, XYZ, uh, millions of products or, or dollars. Talking about uh, numbers, I'm very open, Adam. Just like I'm open with you in this podcast, I'm very open and honest. And the media loves numbers. The media loves numbers. They want to hear that it's 4,000 laptops and not just a lot of laptops. They want to hear that it's a million dollars worth of Samsung TVs and not just a heap of televisions. They want to hear that, uh, you know, you are giving it to the Goliaths of the industry, whether it's uh, JB Hi-Fi, Harvey Norman, Meyer, or whoever it is. And... I'll be honest, I never shied from it. Call it the Israeli chutzpah or call it just a, you know, a young entrepreneur trying to build his business and looking for that uh, third door. I think now it's uh, part of my uh, personality because uh, even though I don't have that much to sell, you'll often see me on, uh, on LinkedIn on a weekly basis, Adam, trumpeteering something. It may be my business or someone else's business, but I certainly enjoy the trumpeteering. David and Goliath piece is a really interesting one, and you guys were absolutely a, a David. How hard was it competing against Meyer, Harvey Norman? Meyer was, was a great business back then, maybe not so much now. Uh, David Jones. Did you get access to brands like Samsung and Nike directly, or, or were you locked out? I suppose David Schaefer from Kogan, who obviously was one of your great competitors back in the day, and, and those guys were locked out of, of all those brands for, for a number of years, not so much now, but certainly over the first decade. Did you guys face those same issues? And, and if you did, how did you get around that? Look, absolutely, Adam, and I can promise you that even today, some some brands will not sell to Catch and, and Kogan and various others. Uh, and that's even post-COVID. But absolutely, I mean, one of my most common lines that I repeat again and again is that answer that we used to get from suppliers in the early days. Hey, guys, where are you from? We're from Catch of the Day. We sell online. Sorry, we don't sell to any online businesses. We will only sell to you if you have a bricks and mortar entity. And we've never, we haven't had a bricks and mortar entity. But, uh, you know, some of them will give you the opportunity. Of course, when we started, it was not the big brands. You just need to prove to them that it's something that they are missing out on. Uh, so in a way, I do feel sorry for, I do feel happy for many of the e-commerce players right now 
Because uh, being pioneers of e-commerce that started this, you know, trajectory 15 years ago, we have certainly paved the way for, uh, for, for, for the newcomers. Today, I think the message probably would have changed that. I mean, it's quite ironic because, you know, a supplier will be a lot more excited to sell to you today knowing that you've got an e-commerce uh, uh, store uh, rather than a store on uh, Glen Ferry or Chapel Street in Melbourne, right? I think one of the things that uh, I think, you, I'm not sure if you guys did, but other retailers would do was was potentially import a product from overseas directly as a kind of a grey import, which which isn't illegal, uh, but the brands didn't like it. Uh, and then that would then compel the brand to sell to you. Is that something, is that a strategy that you guys were able to ever use successfully to, to sort of get around that initial hesitancy to sell online because these brands were stuck in sort of decades ago mentality? Yeah, we started we started importing later on. The main reason that we started importing is when Catch was already four, five, and six years old, we got to a situation where suppliers could not give us the quantities to satisfy the amazing hunger of our audience. So let's assume we could sell a thousand of something. The supplier only had 500 in stock. And uh, we had to fill a day, seven days worth of amazing deals, and we'd start importing. We started importing on uh, two verticals. Number one is non-branded goods. Non-branded goods, which is, you know, cheap Chinese, uh, you know, electronics, gadgets, and and so on. But uh, we also realized that there is an opportunity to play in the gray market. Uh, for those that don't understand what the gray market is, it's basically us going to suppliers of branded goods, of brands that everyone knows and recognizes, from uh, Colgate in supermarket to uh, Asics and uh, Nike shoes to Samsung and electronics. Those products, we found them to be more readily available somewhere around the world. It may be London, New York, uh, the Bahamas or, uh, or Israel. And uh, as long as everything is done by the book and legally, it was certainly something that was very, very successful for uh, for us at Catch, and uh, Catch still does that uh, in, in in very big numbers today. In 2010, Gabby and Hesse created the next business called Scoopon. Again, it was Hesse who was watching what was happening in the US and noticed a site called Groupon. Groupon was the quickest business to ever hit a billion dollars in annual sales, and Groupon actually had a really similar model to Catch of the Day. Instead of selling products like laptops and TVs, they sold services like massages and holidays. Hesse pulled together a brand new team and worked out of a new office to build Scoopon in 2010, and within a couple of years, they became a household name. After Scoopon, they used their database, reputation, and marketing now to incubate even new vertical businesses, and these include a grocery run, MumGo, and later, Eat Now. And just a year after launching Scoopon, Gabby and Hesse received their biggest windfall yet, an $80 million investment from US giant Tiger Global, as well as money from James Packer and Seek founders Andrew and Paul Bassett. And even though Gavin Hesse had been hugely successful up until that point, the money that came in was still life-changing. You know, having that financial backing, financial security is something that we that we all strive for. Until then, I, you know, I drove my shitty little car and I lived in a tiny little house in McKinnon. And Let's be honest, I could really upgrade my uh, my standard of living. Uh, you can suddenly send your kids to a private school and feel comfortable about it and uh, and so on. One of those days that you certainly celebrate because you, 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 your life changes. But, uh, you know, taking away the, the personal success here, uh, another thing that happened on that day is, is the kind of reputation that you build by being front page news. 
Mm. I remember just a couple of months earlier, I was looking for a warehouse and I'm meeting lots of real estate agents, commercial real estate agents, and they obviously try and suss you out and see if you can pay the bills. What do you do? Oh, I'm selling online. The business is called Catch of the Day. They have never heard about it. But uh, after the release of that news, I can tell you, Adam, the whole startup community, business community has heard of the Catch of the Day brand. And, uh, and let's be honest, everyone loves to deal with a winner. And lots of doors uh, started opening up a lot easier. And that's great for any business. As amazing as that was, there's probably a darker side to that Tiger deal. And that would play out over a number of years. But obviously, you and Hezzy maintained 60% of the business and essentially majority controlling shareholders. But you also had professional investors on the board. You had Lee Fixel, probably one of the, the best regarded Midas touch investors globally on, on the board. You had, I think, Jason Langer maybe on your board. Um, serious people. And you essentially, you guys ended up hiring professional CEOs, professional COOs that, that were very different to you guys, uh, not startup guys. How did that change impact, be it positive or negative, the culture and I guess the the inherent value of catch? So what do you think that was a net positive or a net negative, that, that change? All right, so now we're getting into Chapter 3 and Chapter 3 starts with the following line. Lee Fixel comes to Gabby and Hezzy and says, Gabby, Hezzy, well done, you're smart guys. You managed to get the business so far, but uh, I think it's time for you to go and find some rock stars. But what he really told us was that uh, we don't think that you are good enough. Uh, congratulations, but I think that you know we really need some professional leaders to come and lead this business and take it to the next level. And again, being uh, you know unexper- inexperienced uh, you know entrepreneurs, we've never done this before. Uh, we listened to our new uh, you know investor from New York. And uh, we started hiring a, a whole new layer of management. Uh, it started with a CFO, it led to CEO, COO. I clearly mentioned in the book, Adam, that back in 2012, I did not even know what CFO stood for. So that's the kind of world that, uh, that I come from. CFO, of course, stands for Chief Financial Officer. But back in 2012, Gabby Labovich did not know what it stood for. <laughs> So yeah, sadly, uh, we are forced to do a big meeting every Monday morning. And in that meeting sits the uh, leaders of uh, Mumgo and Grocery Run and uh, it now. And Vino Mofo at the time joined our business and, uh, it's, and, and lots of reporting. And once a month, a big board meeting that we need to prepare for with people like, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Lee Fixel, etc. It was quite unusual, but, uh, you know, if you want to grow, you just got to keep surrounding yourself with, uh, with smart people. But uh, as you mentioned, uh, Adam, with the introduction of uh, a, a different bunch of individuals that came from different businesses that some have startup mentality and others did not, there, there's, of course, conflicts that, uh, that arise as well. And, uh, you know, you need to learn to live with them and keep on growing your business. So I think what back then you, you were still focused on, on the catch business and, and Hezzy, as is his want, tends to sort of work on new businesses and in... In 2012, I think you guys bought a, a small business, a really small takeaway order site called Eat Now, uh, and soon after bought a business we own and merged it in. And then, at the time, Eat Now was was losing a bunch of bunch of money. You were having, a few, I guess, a few sort of not issues, but but the catch business probably wasn't going as well as it had been when you guys were running it. And Eat Now's sort of draining. And I think Hezzy was probably the only one who was supporting it. I think everybody, I think yourself included, but but certainly not just you, was was very critical of of, of Eat Now. And, and fast forward a couple of years and and you merged the business with Menulog and 
probably had one of the greatest exits, if not the greatest exit in Australian history for, for almost a billion dollars. I think on reflection now, how, how hard was it was for, for Hesi to take that stance against everyone? Uh, I think probably the entire board was 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 critical of him. And I guess how much do you look back on on that as a as a as a really important period in the business's development? Yeah. So as we mentioned Hezi earlier, Hezi uh, doesn't enjoy the day to day operational part of running a business, but he found that he really enjoys launching things from scratch. So after building Scoopon, Scoopon was two years old by then, he got tired of Scoopon and it was run really well under the management of John Barros. And Hezi uh, jumped onto his next project, which was, uh, which was It Now. As you mentioned, we bought an, you know, an unsuccessful uh, food delivery uh, player, uh, which to everyone uh, listening today, they all understand what food delivery means. But back in 2012, it was still an interesting new space that was, uh, seemed to be a, a massive gamble. And uh, Catch was very successful at the time, very profitable. Scoopon was doing well. Grocery Run was doing well. And all the, all the uh, product businesses were really kicking goals. Uh, it now was this interesting startup that sat at the back of the room. But unlike the other businesses that were very, very profitable, it now got to a point where it was burning or spending or losing $200,000 uh, every month. And I remember myself and the other leaders of the product business, uh, you know, challenging that and uh, and being unhappy. We love making money and we love being profitable and we were not happy uh, burning $200,000 a month of, uh, you know, cash that was uh, built by our other successful businesses. I remember very clearly, uh, you know, advising Hezi to go to the market and uh, try and raise, uh, you know, a million or two for it now. And uh, together with our CEO at the time, uh, Jason Rudy, they went and went with a bunch of, uh, you know, local investors. And uh, the end result was that uh, no one was interested in uh, investing in it now. As you mentioned, uh, the whole thing ended up in a real, um, in a real fairy tale kind of ending, where uh, it now the number two player at the time ended up merging with the number one player at the time, Menulog. That happened in uh, February of uh, 2015, and by June 2015, the combined entity ended up selling to Just Eat from England for the crazy sum of 855 uh, million dollars. We pinched ourselves on that day. No one really, no one could believe that uh, we managed to sell that business for such a large sum of money. Fast forward, uh, you know, six years. It sounds really cheap, doesn't it, Adam? Because uh, every family in Australia uses Menulog and Uber Eats. Uh, you know, a bunch of times uh, every single week. What a what a tremendous story and what a successful brand name. So after you sold that, that, that incredible result with, with Eat Now, I think you guys got a couple hundred million bucks personally out of that. The business effectively stagnated to a degree. I think you and Hezzy were, were very much out of the day-to-day, day-to-day operations. It was, there was a management team in there and I think you tried to IPO the business that didn't work. You tried to trade sale, the business didn't work. Uh, and you had a valuation. I think valuations was, was, was far lower than, than even the Tiger valuation. How hard was that for, for, especially for you, who's such a hands-on operator, to, to see and to, to not be able to fix as, as you may have been 10 years earlier? Yeah. So we, we actually mentioned in our book the, the revenue numbers, and the revenue numbers really doubled between the years of 2006 
and 2012, literally doubling every year from uh, 8 to 16 to 32 to 64 to 120 to about 250. And then throughout the years of 2013, 14, and 15, it sort of reached a ceiling of around 250, and we found ourselves unable to grow. Another thing that happened, as I mentioned, in mid-2015, Gabi and Hezi became very cashed up. And uh, I don't have any other way to describe it, but we became a little bit fat and lazy. I started traveling the world. I went to the World Cup here, and <laughs> Hezi went to Israel for a few months. And Hezi ended up getting married around that period. And we found that uh, both of us are spending a lot less time in the office. We spent 216 uh again, out of the office, but our management team uh, were instructed to go out there and put our business in the window. We, uh, we hired Goldman Sachs. They did a tremendous job for us uh, selling it now in Menulog to uh, go out there to the market and investigate for an uh, exit opportunity of catch. When I said exit opportunity, it could be a merge, it could be a one plus one equal three, it could be a sale, it could be an IPO. Long story short, Adam, no one was interested in catch uh, back in 2016. They looked at a business that was absolutely unable to grow. Uh, everyone else in the market were starting to build their e-commerce businesses, and uh, no one saw the potential in it, not the investors, nor were the founders at the same time. So uh, it's interesting, but uh, in the book, we refer to the whole year of 2016 the year of doing nothing. It's <laughs> uh, quite unusual, but it's very honest. From that court mini crisis came just this great opportunity, and you guys ironically did a did a Kerry Packer, a James Packer, and Tiger, and you bought back a bunch of shares for a fraction of, of what you sold them for in the first place. Uh, and you you brought in a, a dynamic guy called Natty Harpaz as a CEO, and, and you guys, I think, unbeknownst to most, became very very active in the business again and created essentially what, what became the catch, catch of the day marketplace. How nervous were you guys rolling the dice? So you, you'd had all this cash you'd taken from, from eight now, you effectively reinvested that back in the business. Uh, so you, you really put it on the line. How nervous were you guys in doing that? Were you, were you, were you confident you could get it working again or was there a, a real element of holding on for dear life and, and hoping for the best? Okay. So just to explain to the listeners, sometimes in uh, late 2016, Gabi and Hezi, the founders, approached uh, Tiger Global, the investor uh, that has been around for about five years and said, look, thank you very much, but we think that we prefer running this business as a family business again. As we mentioned in the book, we agreed on a price that both parties were unhappy with and, uh, and, and Tiger left the building. Throughout 2016, as I mentioned, Gabi and Hezi were hoping that the business will reach some form of an exit. But at the same time, we also contemplated the, uh, the other option that nothing would actually happen. And if nothing happens, what are we going to do about it in order to save this business? And uh, as quite often happens, Adam, uh, changes need to come at the top. And we decided as the number one move to change our uh, CEO. Uh, we met a very entrepreneurial gentleman in Sydney called Nati Harpaz. Nati really impressed us. He had absolutely no break background in uh, retail startup, but he was a, a very much a hardworking entrepreneur. I'd like to call him the, the number one door kicker that I've ever mentioned, I ever met. Uh, Nati doesn't take no for an answer. And uh, 
you know, to prove the point, he said goodbye to everything that he knew in Sydney, packed up his young family, and within a very short time started as the new uh, CEO of, uh, of Catch. Uh, before we elaborate on what we did, just like we called the year of 2016, the year of uh, nothing happened, we called the year of 2017 the year of the year of everything happened because so <laughs> much was achieved and so much done over a period of about 12 to 18 months after the arrival of uh, Nati. The marketplace was just an incredible success. You, you completely transformed the business. And within probably two years or just over two years, you actually you ran a process. You actually sold the business to, to West Farmers uh, for famously for $233 million in, in all cash. And, and you and Hesi pocketed probably $100 million bucks, if not more, each. So from a financial perspective, that was a, just an incredible result. And, and again, I wouldn't say life-changing because you already had money, but, but certainly a great culmination of – 15 years work but was it a overall a happy or a, a sad moment when you sold the business and walked out the door you, you became very even richer uh but you also were no longer running this amazing business you built how, how do you reflect on that now valuation all that stuff aside just purely in terms of the business itself uh, I'll, I'll answer it from a number of angles why did we sell first we found ourselves uh, after three years of not growing of 2016, getting to a point of being really, really tired. It's 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 really hard work. Uh, Amazon launched in Australia in uh, December of 2017, and the truth is, Adam, we looked at uh, you know the all the changes that are happening in e-commerce and asked ourselves the question: Will Gabi and Hezi, the young entrepreneurs from Naharia, Israel, be able to uh, compete against you know the the behemoths of, of Amazon, eBay, uh, and everyone else that's coming into the market? And the truth is in the pudding. We decided to to check out. At the time, both of us were very happy to sell. We sold the business in September of 2019, and we were so excited. I was looking. I was just about to turn 50. I was, uh, you know, excited to travel the world, watch soccer matches, and have fun. And then something interesting happened, Adam. This thing called Corona. It arrived around uh, six months after uh, the sale of our business. And in many cases, people have described Corona as a 10-year growth in e-commerce over uh, over a 10-week period. Uh, today, it seems like we have sold the business at a very, very low price. And I'm you know, excited for West Farmers for being there at the right place, at the right time, seeing the opportunity and, uh, and, and grabbing this tremendous business. I watch the business from afar and it's great to see the business growing and becoming a household name. And uh, we are very proud parents of, uh, of Catch. And, uh, and, and we'll forever, forever be, you know, lovers and supporters of, uh, of that business. What do you think the most critical factor has been behind you and has repeated success? You've had three now, almost four successes. You guys started with a couple of tiny eBay stores and became Australia's probably most successful ever online retailers. What's that sort of secret ingredient you guys have had that other people haven't? Look, it's, it's not a secret ingredient. It's probably a combination of, of a bunch of things. I don't know. First, first thing that comes to mind is, is really curiosity and that hunger to learn. I can tell you that by 7.30 a.m., both myself and my brother have already read the financial papers and we checked everything to, to, that happened on LinkedIn and each one of us will forward to each other the latest uh, article or news that, that they should be reading. We shouldn't be doing it. I mean, we could not be doing it right now. We could be just lying on a beach somewhere. But that, that hunger to learn uh, and, and, and be involved in something is, is just part of who we are. It's part of, part of our DNA. 
Number two is, is probably hard work. Nothing really comes without work. And, and, and I think that both myself and my brother have that in, in, in spades. We, we enjoy working hard. It's the only way that we know how to do it. Uh, and then I think we brought different elements to, to the mix. You know, I'm, I'm a people's person. I love to surround myself with really smart people that come to work and work really hard for you. Crazy is more of the, of the, of the numbers person and the negotiation beat. And somehow these two accidental entrepreneurs, and again, <laughs> I had absolutely nothing at the age of 35 and I was probably the poorest out of all my lawyers, accountants and doctors friends, uh, <laughs> you know, have managed to, 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 to have the vision, uh, the drive and, and, and combined with risk element. I'm touching on a bunch of things, Adam, that really, you know, describe what, what, what an entrepreneur is. But yeah, anyway, I'll leave it at that. Uh, you, you've been this incredibly successful guy over really since 2011. You've had this great degree of success. But I think the thing that's always struck me about you is your your amazing normalness. I think we were once, I don't know if you remember this, but we were once on a train, we were visiting a warehouse, our warehouse in Western Sydney, and you just started talking to this random kid about soccer for about 15 minutes. I think he was wearing a soccer, some sort of soccer jersey. Uh, so you've, you've you've never lost touch with, with, with people, uh, but how has – how has success and, and so money and, and you and Hesie are very wealthy now and, and you can buy pretty much anything you want and, and you're very well known. How, how has money and success changed you guys day to day? Do you, do you, are you still the same guys you were in 2005 before you launched the first business or do you lead quite different lives now? Look, one of the best compliments that I get, and thanks for all the compliments today, is, is, is the simple compliment of, Gabby, I've known you for 20 years and you are exactly the same person. Uh, I still have my fears. I still, I'm still honest about my weaknesses. Uh, I'm still happy to speak to that person in, in the coffee shop. And I still wear the same shoes and runners. You'll never see me or my wife wear, uh, wear Gucci or, you know, or, or live anything but an extravagant life. But of course, having the riches that comes with success make your life easier, Adam. It's, it's just unavoidable. Of course, I can drive that car that I want and I live in a lovely house in the suburb of Caulfield and, uh, and I can travel flying business class. But apart from that, life is quite simple because I, you know, I spend in the morning the same amount of money as everyone else buying a, you know, a coffee and croissant. You don't really need that, that much. What I found out is that I thought that I was ready to retire at the age of 50, which was, you know, a year ago. But I, I'm very honest to admit to you right now, Adam, that, that, that I'm not. And I'm really missing it. And I'm feeling that I'm missing that purpose to wake up in the morning. And the purpose right now may not be becoming any richer because I've got more than I need. And, and it's probably enough for me and my kids. But it's that purpose of building something from scratch starting something new and, and seeing it turn into a useful product that, that, that Australians will, will know, trust, and, and, and hopefully recognise. And that was Gabby Leibovich from Catch of the Day. And Gabby tells me his favourite remaining investment since selling his beloved Catch of the Day is a stake in a little travel website called Luxury Escapes, which we're all hoping becomes his most profitable investment ever. Our producer is Lindsay Gray. Our audio producer is Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Listener.